Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. Tonight, my guest will be Rocky Anderson of the Justice Party, part of V-Radio's series of alternative candidates. Um, if this is your first time listening to V-Radio, please consider visiting my website, v-radio.org. There you can find archives of more shows like this one, interviews with presidential candidates, congressmen, senators, documentary filmmakers, scientists, and activists, and a lot of great roundtable discussions. You can also go there to find my must-see TV list, a link, a link to free documentaries you can watch on the Internet that I advise for any activist. Um, if you like what you hear, please consider clicking Donate and contributing to V-Radio. It is a listener-supported effort. Um, all of that station identification out of the way, Rocky, uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Well, I'm Rocky Anderson. Uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to discuss my campaign. I'm running for President of the United States on the Justice Party ticket. I'm a former eight-year, two-term mayor of Salt Lake City. I founded High Road for Human Rights and was executive director there for four years. And before all of that, uh, I practiced law here in 20, uh, for 21 years and uh, did a variety of community work, uh, working with uh, a school for economically disadvantaged children, was on the boards of the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, Common Cause, working for ethics reform in government, uh, have a broad range of experience, and all of that really naturally evolved to the point where I am today, and that is in doing everything I can to turn things around in this country uh, in terms of our economy, uh, the disastrous impact of the plutocracy in which we're living, that is control of our government by the wealthy, the tremendous disparity unknown since the 1920s uh, in the economic situation between the very, very wealthy and the rest of us in this country, both in terms of wealth and income, the wars, including illegal wars of aggression in which our nation has engaged to expand the American empire with such tragic results, the stranglehold of the military-industrial complex, the two-tiered system of justice where there are those elite few who get to to violate the law without any accountability, whether it's war crimes, whether it's illegal surveillance, whether it's Wall Street financial fraud leading in large part to the economic disaster from which so many of us are still reeling. All of those things combined are what led me to decide not only that we needed a new political party, one in which everyone concerned with these issues I've been talking about can find a home and also to uh, run as the candidate for the presidency in this race. I think there's so much good that can be done by all of us who will stand up against these problems that our nation is facing. And that's really what it's going to take is every one of us joining a people's movement and doing what we all can to directly confront these problems and demand real significant change. 
That was actually excellent. You covered a great deal of ground. I can see you've done this before. <laughs> um, well, not, never quite like that, and I appreciate the latitude. I'm usually stopped a million times in the course of it. So, yeah, obviously we could we could go on, uh, and and I look forward to the rest of this hour interview talking about these issues. But uh, the one thing I must say is I see our republic being virtually transformed in our time during these past 10 years with an imperial presidency uh, embracing more and more power with a timid Congress backing off uh, and allowing the president to assume these uh, unprecedented powers, dangerous powers, tyrannical powers. And uh, it's this is going to be an election, and I know people always say this, that this is the most important election, but at this point in time, with a Democratic president basically extending the Bush presidency another four years, we cannot allow this to go on, whether it's a Republican or the Democratic candidate. We, the American people, have so much at stake, the world has so much at stake, that we've got to come together and do whatever we can to overthrow this dictatorship of the corrupting influence of money in our government. Now, a question that I ask every guest who comes on V-Radio, uh, what was the moment in your life, the precipice that made you go from being someone who was just part of the world to wanting to make it better? Essentially, what made you an activist? Oh, that probably goes back to my high school years or college years uh, when I realized, and this was quite an epiphany, and once I had it, it's pretty much guided my life ever since, and that is the realization that whenever there's wrongdoing, and we have a responsibility to find out the wrongdoing, first of all, but when we know about wrongdoing, we have to do what we can to stand up against it, or we're part of the problem. We're contributing to the wrongdoing. There are really three kinds of people in this world. There are the perpetrators of wrongdoing, those who affirmatively do wrong toward other people. And then there are the vast majority of people, and that's the bystanders, the people who see that going on or who turn their head away from it, they say, oh, I don't want to know about it, or I don't want to get involved, or it's none of my business, or I'll let somebody else do it, or it's not my job, or it may be a threat to me to stand up to it. And that's really how fascism arose in Europe, was from people of otherwise that otherwise were of goodwill turning a blind eye, not standing up to it. And then there's a third category of people, and those are the upstanders, the people who will stand up and take a stand and combat wrongdoing. And it was a realization of the, the personal responsibility we all have that changed my life, that set me on the path toward activism. And wherever I saw that I might be able to bring about a positive change, I felt a real obligation to do that. So I took that approach in my law practice. I took that approach in my community practice while I was mayor. 
in my work with High Road for Human Rights and now as a candidate for president. Now, we've talked, it was actually an excellent answer, and um, I'm glad that you know you were able to have that kind of a background to what it is that you're doing. And you kind of answered the question I also usually ask is what made you run for president? Uh, I guess we could just kind of launch into the issues. Now, you, you touched a little bit on the issues of illegal wars that we've been moved into, you know, in this country. And I want to kind of get a little bit more direct. Let's say tomorrow morning you were the United States president. What do you do in Afghanistan and what do you do in Iraq? Uh, I bring our troops back. Uh, first of all, in Iraq, uh, President Obama claims to have brought our troops back. We've left a lot of contractors there. Uh, we've been contracting and subcontracting out so much that, that belongs with our military and that should be done and would be done a lot less expensively and more efficiently by our military. Uh, but I would bring our troops back, and we're doing more harm than could ever be imagined by being in Afghanistan right now. We, we could have lent a helping hand. We could have helped make things better there, but we've absolutely worn out our welcome. And it's not just this last massacre by one of our servicemen there, but uh, it's the innocent lives that have been taken by the drone attacks. It's the um, other attacks where people have been killed and then we say, oh, it was a mistake. Gee, sorry about that. How many times <laughs> do we think we can pay off the Afghani people for having killed their sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers? We have, we have been the greatest recruiting tool the Taliban and al-Qaeda could have ever hoped for. It's like we fell right into their trap by the way that we've conducted ourselves. And uh, we've got plenty that we need to do here at home to spend the billions upon billions of dollars that are being spent continuing these, these disastrous wars. It, just, it, it absolutely makes no sense. And I would bring our troops home, and I would do everything I could to mend fences with the people of those nations. Uh, I, 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 the, the invasion and occupation of Iraq were not only absolutely illegal, since they were, it constituted a war of aggression, which means an attack on another nation. If you haven't already been attacked or under imminent threat of being attacked, uh, we, we weren't at any risk of Iraq harming us. In fact, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice both said within a few months of 9-11, both of them independently said Saddam Hussein's arms have taken from him. He doesn't pose a risk even to his neighbors. He said that. How many Americans know that? And then after George Bush and these neocons decided, oh, we're going to go after him since we failed to get al-Qaeda, we're going to abandon that and go in and uh, attack and occupy Iraq. 
with the claim that there were weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, our intelligence community knew that there was no evidence, as did the weapons inspectors who were there. We were lied to as a nation. There's been no accountability for that, no accountability for the massive human rights abuses that took place in the context of the so-called war against terrorism. So, yes, I, I would end those wars, and I would do everything that we could to befriend nations, not increase the hostilities, increase the hatred and resentment that's felt by so many millions of people around the world because of our abysmal conduct in the Middle East these past 10 years. Well, that was an excellent answer, um, and actually, uh, it kind of actually brings to mind, and I, I always kind of remind the listeners, and if you haven't checked this out yet, you can Google a YouTube video called How to Create an Angry American, um, where they play clips of the various people in the Bush administration saying there are no weapons, or he's no threat, or we don't need to go there, and then playing those clips right next to them saying, no, we need to go there. <laughs> uh, just like putting the lies right next to each other, it's a, it's an amazing little YouTube that really sums up all the lies of the war in Iraq pretty quickly. Um, so now that we, you know, we've definitely discussed foreign policy and, I, and I've loved your answers there. Um, let's move on to something a bit more on the domestic side. What about health care? We are the only nation in the industrialized world that doesn't provide basic health care for every one of our citizens. Isn't that amazing? People talk about this being the greatest nation. We have the greatest health care system. It, it, we do not have the greatest health care system. Our medical results, on the whole, are mediocre. We have one of the highest maternal death rates, one of the, 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 the highest infant mortality rates in the industrialized world, and it's because of the lack of health care coverage. We're also the only country in the industrialized world where people take out bankruptcy because of their health care bills. The only one. Mm -hmm. in, in the rest of the industrialized world, there's not one person that takes out bankruptcy because of their medical bills. In this country, every year, 700,000 bankruptcies because of medical bills. The answer is universal coverage. And it's it's, I think, without a doubt, best achieved through a single-payer system like they have in Taiwan. Taiwan decided they're going to, do, they're going to implement a new health care system with universal health care. They wanted to keep the costs down. And by the way, I didn't address costs. Our costs for this system where our medical results are mediocre and where we're the only nation in the industrialized world that doesn't provide health care for all of our citizens, the costs here are double, more than double, the average costs throughout the rest of the industrialized world. So Taiwan, they took a look at it and said, we want to keep our costs down. We want to provide good health care coverage for all of our citizens. So they brought in some folks to take a look at what was going on around the rest of the industrialized world, what other developed nations were doing, what the good elements were, what the bad elements were. Most of the bad elements, of course, were found in the United States. And they implemented this fantastic system. 
It's a single-payer system. Everybody pays into it like they would with insurance premiums, but they pay into the government. They're not considered taxes there like they are in Canada. And I'd say either system would work so much better than what we have here. But you include everybody in the system, and you make sure that everybody's covered. There's none of this, you know, insurance companies hiring people to figure out ways to shaft you out of coverage. Uh, the, the government sets the minimum coverage, sets the rates, and the rates are kept down, and people get the coverage that they want. It, it works out really well for them. But, uh, you know, you can take a look. At In this country, we've got a potpourri of, of all different kinds of medical systems. Our VA system is like the British socialized system, where the, the medical providers and the payer are government employees. It's all government run. Our Medicare system is like the Canadian system, where we all pay into it through our Medicare contributions, taxes, and then everybody is covered, but only after a certain age. We ought to have that kind of coverage for everybody. It shouldn't depend on how old you are. Why is it that people over 65 or 67 are going to be covered by Medicare and people who have families or, or not, anybody else, why wouldn't everybody be covered? And then we have the CHIP program for, for our children. They're, they get coverage if, if their parents are under a certain income level. I mean, it, it's just this crazy quilt kind of system have Medicaid in case you can't afford it. Well, there are a lot of people that can't afford premiums in this country. There are some 40 to 50 million people who have no health care coverage at all today. And even under the Obama plan, there will be 23 million people without any basic health care coverage. We're a much better country than that. It really comes down to the moral question, should everybody be able to have basic health care? Every other nation in the industrialized world has said yes. The only reason we say no in this country is because our politicians are bought off by the insurance and pharmaceutical industries. It's a corrupting influence of money that has stopped us from joining the rest of the industrialized world in being at all humane in our treatment of millions upon millions of our brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens in this country. So I would fight. I wouldn't do like President Obama and sit back in the White House and let Congress duke it out I would go out to the American people, much like FDR did with Social Security, and I would make the case, create the kind of political pressure that would make it impossible for Congress to do the American people what our Congress has done and continues to do, even under the Obama health care plan. Now, that was an excellent answer um, and very well thought out. And I, and I have to say, I definitely understand where you're coming from. I was discussing with other candidates like, you know, that I've seen this problem up close, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate it um, because they've never been in that position. But, like, I have a friend 
you know, he's a really good guy. He's hardworking and he's doing his best, but he got hit by a car. And he can't afford the MRI. His shoulder is not working correctly. There's obviously something very, very wrong with him. And there's nothing he can do about it. You know, and there are a lot of people, I think, that, you know, just it's the same thing with war. You know, because their their children aren't over there, the problem doesn't exist to them. You know, it's it allows them to tune themselves out. And I, I think that uh, your, your points about healthcare are excellent. And I've also seen, you know, as I have many friends in Canada, and there's also a lot of Canadian mm-hmm. listeners to this show, you know, who said that a lot of the propaganda being thrown around about their system supposedly being bad is is just that it's it's propaganda. Um, now we did t- we did touch obviously a bit on the economy, and that would be something I would want to segue into, which would be to say, what would you as president uh, do about the economic situation with the endless raising in unemployment, the outsourcing that you know kind of increases that. There's lots of automation as well that's eliminating jobs. We're kind of getting to a point where it looks like, you know, the world is changing because of the state of technology. There may be a time when our our labor class becomes obsolete. What is your solution, at least in the short term, for these people who are not going to be able to find jobs? Well, first of all, I would initiate a jobs program like the WPA or CCC uh, in under the Roosevelt administration. My high school in Ogden, Utah, it's one of the most beautiful high schools in the country, Ogden High School. I I urge anybody, look, just Google Ogden High School. It is an unbelievable building, intricate masonry, the the inlaid wood inside. It, It is absolutely gorgeous. It was a WPA project. It employed a lot of people, and it brought about something of lasting value. We, our infrastructure in this country is deteriorating at an unbelievable pace. We're not rebuilding. We're not retrofitting. We're not repairing our infrastructure in this nation. We could be doing that. For instance, we ought to take every federal building that's over 30 years old and retrofit it up to lead gold or silver standards, if not gold, or rather if not platinum, and save a lot of energy, create a lot of jobs, help rebuild and retrofit our infrastructure for the future. It's a great investment for those who come along after us. And we know that these programs uh, were enormous successes, WPA and the CCC programs. Uh, you could you could also have programs that that put artists to work for the public good. Uh, these this is where we ought to be making our investments rather than this ridiculous military budget, where people in Congress are appropriating billions and billions of dollars simply because they have contractors or subcontractors back home where these people in Congress want to send the pork. It happens all the time. It happened with the F-22 program. Secretary of Defense says F-22 is an antiquated program. We're not using the F-22s. We want to do away with it. People still fought for funding for it in Congress simply 
because they had contractors or subcontractors at home. And these contractors know what they're doing with the F-22. They had contractors or subcontractors in 44 different states. Imagine that. Why would that be? It makes it much more expensive, much less efficient to build these weapons programs, but they did it so that they could have that kind of pressure on Congress to continue the stream of funding. That's where our money is going. We need to put it into jobs and building our infrastructure. Secondly, I would renegotiate our trade agreements. Instead of free trade, it ought to be fair trade. We need to look out for the American working people rather than simply trying to make it as cheap and easy as possible for multinational corporations to fire people here, take the jobs away from the United States and go where they can pay people a penny on the dollar for doing the same work in other countries where there aren't the workers' protections, where there aren't the environmental protections. It's absolutely obscene what our government has done to working men and women and their families by exporting these jobs. And then the customs that are charged. China charges 10 times the amount of customs for United States goods going into China that the United States charges for Chinese goods coming into the United States. Does that make any sense? <laughs> when, we're, when we're losing all these jobs to China and other nations, and then for the long term, another investment we need to make to, to maintain the, the kind of competitive edge to regain, first of all, because we've lost it in large part, but to regain and maintain the competitive edge that our nation ought to have in relation to these other nations, where their students are doing better on their test scores, where their workers are taking American jobs, we need to invest in our educational infrastructure, in our programs, to make sure that our students are doing as well as students anywhere else in the world. We need to raise the bar in every respect. And it's not only good for our nation now, it means the future. Our children and grandchildren, they'll be living in a very, very different nation, one that's so far behind in terms of its competitive edge with the rest of the world if we don't make these investments now. And then, of course, job training. We've got to move people. Things are moving so quickly, especially with the information and technology uh, revolution. We've got to be able to move people out of, of areas where there aren't the jobs and train them so that they can work in these areas. And so, again, we're not losing all of these jobs to other nations. I mean, why is it that there are so many IT workers in India and we have people here who are absolutely competent and who should be qualified to work at those same jobs? So it's, I, I'm, I'm a real optimist when it comes to this because the American people have at every stage of our history risen to the occasion. 
we, we've taken on these kinds of challenges. We've retooled our manufacturing plants. We did it after Pearl Harbor. We can do it now to build a green technology to meet not only the challenges of climate change, but but to compete in the new green energy economy, world economy, where we're just getting killed competitively by people like the Chinese that 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 have recognized the competitive advantages of jumping on board with green technologies. They also realize, of course, that they are going to have these incredible energy needs, and there's got to be a way to do that and not poison everybody to death in the process. So, sure, they have a lot of, lot of pollution problems in China, but at the same time, they're building more than half of the solar panels worldwide in China, and they're also building more than half of the wind turbines in China. Why aren't we doing that in the United States? You know, I have a uh, on-demand water heater where it only heats water when you need it, and it shuts off rather than these ridiculous conventional water heaters that we use in the United States. There's hardly any other nation that uses these, by the way. Um, there's, not a, there's not a U.S. manufacturer of on-demand water heaters. If you buy one, you're going to end up buying one that's made in Japan or Germany, most likely. That doesn't make any sense at all. So we can be attracting these industries if we make the kinds of investments, but it takes government investment. It takes the, the government focusing on research and development in these areas and helping create the kinds of jobs in these fields that will last over the long term. So I'm I'm a real optimist this can be done, but I'm I'm very discouraged that even with a supposedly democratic administration that we've fallen so far behind both in terms of international leadership on climate change and energy independence and in a real commitment to clean green energy technology. That's actually a good uh, segue because I was headed in that direction <laughs> was to talk about um, you know alternative energies and the getting, getting over our addiction to oil. Um, what is it that you think as far as being a president, what would you do to initiate that or do you feel you've kind of explained it? I mean, is it a matter of retooling our our economy here, our manufacturing here towards that that towards that technology and then offer it to the world? Is that kind of your plan with that? Absolutely, uh, and and training people. Can you imagine? I mean, I, you, you look around any city and you see all the rooftops. Why do we not have solar panels on our rooftops? Mm-hmm. Why do we not have solar panels out in the deserts? Why don't we have? Why aren't we building a grid that can deliver from those sources in the Dakotas? Look at the wind resources. The, the the geothermal resources in the Intermountain West. It's unbelievable. Along the shorelines, the wave energy, both they've got turbines that you've probably seen above the waves, and they also have now turbines that are driven by the, 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 by the water power underneath the, the surface of the water. 
Yeah, you're speaking I'm, our language there. <laughs> it's just amazing. All these opportunities that we have. Uh, so I would absolutely end. I, I wouldn't just sit and talk like George Bush did. Remember him constantly talking about, oh, we're addicted to oil and we need to get off that addiction. Well, he was walking hand in hand with the Saudi sheiks. <laughs> well, we can do this. I mean, what does Barack Obama do? In his nomination acceptance speech, he was touting the benefits of clean coal. There is no such thing. He, he talks about it in the State of the Union, clean coal. This last day of the Union, he's also talking about, well, we're really going to ramp up offshore drilling. Now, was that political pandering or what? You know, when uh, he knows that, that, that we're facing the end of oil, we cannot continue along this path anymore. It's dangerous. It's destructive to our economy, to the environment. Uh, you know, people are going to look back in another generation and say, wait a minute, they knew about climate change. They knew about what was happening with our air quality, with our water quality, with the coming of the end of oil, where the supply of oil is much greater than the output of oil. Sure, we can hang on for a little while. We can go drill everywhere. We can ruin the, the Arctic wildlife National Refuge, we, we, you know, we can spoil what we have left in trying to wring the very last out of oil. And look where it gets us. It gets to the point where we're, we're not building a clean, renewable energy economy. We're, we're not saving the world and, and its inhabitants from the most catastrophic consequences of climate change, we have such an obligation not only to ourselves but to the future, and that obligation has been absolutely betrayed by the Bush and Obama administrations because we know better, and yet we have no leadership taking us on a different course. You know, you'll be glad to know, actually, I'm getting lots of comments in the chat room from people that are saying they're going to vote for you as of now. <laughs> so um, you're, you're definitely hitting, well, that's some, great. hitting some core. I, and, and I urge everybody, please take a look at our website, uh, voterocky.org. Uh, I don't have all the position papers I'd like to have. We just, in relative terms, just barely got into this race. Uh, but we're also up on Americans Elect. And uh, I, I only declared there a week ago, and we're already in second place. So I urge everybody, please go to Americans Elect, and I think it's .com, uh, AmericansElect.com, and uh, just click on your support for me there. It can make a tremendous difference, both helping us get the word out to the millions of people that will eventually go to that site, and also, it may possibly get us uh, ballot access in all 50 states. And I'd love to talk about that, too, the, 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 the undermining of our democracy, both in terms of ballot access and the presidential debate process. Well, I'm yeah, sure we can, you'll get to all of oh, that. Oh, yeah, we can absolutely talk about that. And that's one of the reasons I'm actually doing this series. Um, a lot of my listeners are actually the kind of people that are anti-status and they therefore generally don't find things like elections interesting, but I pointed out to them that, 
you know, this is essentially my attempt to kind of extend my middle finger at the mainstream media that does not pay enough attention to candidates. Um, and any candidate who is honest, they go out of their way to try to, uh, you know, minimize those candidates. When I worked for Senator Gravel's campaign, uh, there were, you know, this this guy basically was literally taking the bus, and he was like 78 years old at this point, taking the bus to get to debates, and he they'd give him five minutes out of an hour, you know, um, and it's largely because he kept saying stuff that put put their uh, the stars they wanted to stick on the top of the ticket in check. I would actually credit some of his words with the reasons why Hillary started to fall behind Obama because Gravel was very good at um, pointing out when she lied about things. Um, so, uh, but in any case, um, you know, ballot access is definitely an issue. You have to go through all kinds of crazy hoops, uh, you know, and in addition to that, the, the debates are never uh, in any fashion fair. And even with mainstream candidates, you know, obviously when Congressman Kucinich, now former, unfortunately, Congressman Kucinich was running for office, as the president, you know, they didn't give him very much time, and they got him out of the debates as fast as they could. Congressman Ron Paul, on the Republican side of the aisle, uh, they really tried to minimize him, and they actually kicked him out of a debate, telling him that the reason why was that he wasn't polling high enough, but they kept putting Giuliani in the debates, even though Ron Paul consistently polled higher than Giuliani everywhere they went. Um, so absolutely, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I tell people, particularly who listen to this show, you know, to kind of break the the matrix's hold on them, to use a movie metaphor, and you know, <laughs> yeah. basically, kind of, you know, you got to think with your own thoughts and, and find your own alternative media because it's not going to come to you. And well, let me, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, no, that's okay. uh, in terms, it, I, I, you know. We'd, we'd love to go around the world and say to other nations that they've got to become more democratic and we'll even make war against other nations, occupy other nations under the guise of bringing democracy, furthering democracy to their in their nations. We are such absolute hypocrites when we allow this duopoly of the Democratic and Republican Party to do to our democracy what they have done. They have absolutely eviscerated our democracy. Uh, there, there was a, the, the Helsinki Accords, there was a, the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe in 1990, and the United States sponsored that, and it was basically to bring nations together and say, here are the kinds of things that you should be attending to to bring democracy to your nation. And one of those, I want to read from that, it, and, and, and consider what goes on in this country in the context of what we put in that document. We said, respect the right of individuals and groups to establish in full freedom their own political parties or other political organizations and provide such political parties and organizations with the necessary legal guarantees to enable them to compete with each other on a basis of equal treatment before the law and by the authorities. Now, you go around this country and try to get on the ballot of several of the states and several largest states, and you see how impossible it is 
to get on the ballot to challenge the Republican and the Democratic parties who have made the laws, laws that fly in the face of the, the, that consideration that I just read about what it takes to have a real democracy. We formed this party, the Justice Party, in mid-December. The deadline in California, and it's, it's the earliest deadline, I believe, in the country, January 3rd, to get 103,000 people to not just sign a piece of paper, but to change their voter registration so that they would be Justice Party members. There was either that option or getting a million, 30,000 people to sign a, a, a petition to get the Justice Party on the ballot. By January 3rd, we had two weeks to do that. That's how little the Republican and Democratic parties really care about democracy in this country. Uh, the, the requirements in some other states, Texas, Oklahoma, it, it is just unbelievable all the obstacles that are put up. It takes millions and millions of dollars to get on the ballot because almost any organization that's serious about it, they go out and they pay people to go around and, and gather signatures. Even Ralph Nader had to do that to be able to get on the ballot of most of the states. Now, even if you were to get on the ballot, how do you get the word out? We have these presidential debates. The League of Women Voters used to put it on. They'd invite third-party candidates that the American people wanted to hear from. They decided, the League of Women Voters decided what the format was going to be, how many of these debates were going to be held, who the moderators were going to be. You know what happened? The Republican and Democratic parties got together and they formed the Presidential Debate Commission. <laughs> that commission is controlled lock, stock, and barrel by the Democratic and Republican parties. Representatives of the, two, the nominees of both of those parties get together. They draft out a memorandum of understanding how many debates there will be, where they'll be held, who the moderator is going to be, what the format is, even how long the responses are going to be, and who else, if anybody, is going to be allowed on the stage. And then the Presidential Debate Commission goes out and dutifully executes according to what those two candidates have decided in their memoranda of understanding. That is how perverse it has become in this country. That's how absolutely anti-democratic it has become. So when you hear the word duopoly, it's like monopoly, but now we have two of them that control and own everything. It's absolutely the case in our political system that the Republican and Democratic parties have done everything they can to control it all. And the only way we're going to get beyond that is for the American people to organize, come together, and say we're not going to put up with it anymore. You said earlier that there are some people that are so anti-status that they're saying they don't want anything to do with the electoral system. The most effective thing they can do is get out and register and vote for a party that stands for undoing that duopoly, the, a party that stands for getting rid of that corrupting influence of money in our system. That's exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing now. B believe me, from a personal point of view, 
I didn't want to do this, but I had to do this. Seeing where our country's headed right now, seeing how it's controlled by the the corporations that pay out uh, cumulatively billions of dollars to the lobbyists on K Street in Washington, D.C., and who pay out millions upon millions of dollars for campaigns so that they can control these people that act like they're on retainer to the corporations rather than acting on behalf of the public interest. And I'm talking about not only Congress, I'm also talking about the White House. Because Barack Obama has been bought and paid for every bit as much as our Congress has been bought and paid for. Well, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I often say that it's it's definitely a plutocracy that's pretending to be a democracy. It's it's ruled by money, um, you know, and you see that also in our in our judicial system. You have to have so much money to get your rights realized, to pay lawyers, to pay legal fees, and all that other nonsense they put people through. We do definitely have a nation where you really have to have money to really realize your rights. They at that point, freedom so, doesn't really feel very free. <laughs> but but I don't want anybody to just get cynical and give up. Sure. Don't just throw up your hands and be resigned. Recognize that at every point when this country has had major progressive social movements that prevailed, it was because people at the grassroots were tenacious. They were passionate about it. They, they they didn't sit back in their chairs and content themselves with listening to the radio or watching TV, but they got out and they fought. They got out and they voted and they registered other people to vote. Think of it, the anti-slavery movement, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, the labor movement in this country. They all were successful, not because somebody that was elected to office led the charge, but because people at the grassroots got out, sometimes at risk to their lives, and they fought and fought and carried on until they prevailed. And we can do the same thing. If we're looking for inspiration, you don't have to look very far, at least in terms of of time. Just look at the, the Arab awakening. People coming together organizing through the democratized means of communication that the social media provides for us. And they came together and they said, we will not stand for these dictatorships anymore. We saw it in Tunisia. We saw it in Egypt. We saw it in Libya. And they they put their lives on the line. We don't even need to do that in this country. But they were successful in overthrowing and overthrowing their dictators by by just coming together and saying, we're not going to give up. We're going to keep at this until we have our freedom, until we've overthrown these dictators. Well, we, the American people, if we had the will, if we had the dedication and commitment to doing it, instead of just sitting around and complaining about it, we too can overthrow the dictatorship of the corrupting influence of money. We can overthrow the dictatorship of the military-industrial complex. We can overthrow the dictatorship of this imperialistic presidency that's, that's been accumulating so much tyrannical power that now 
President Obama has actually signed into law the authority to go around and pick up anybody, essentially kidnap them, hold them indefinitely up to the rest of their lives without charges, without a trial, without legal representation, without the right of habeas corpus. Who ever thought that could happen in the United States of America? So I say, if we've had enough, if we've had enough with the greatest economic disparity since the 1920s in both income and wealth, if we've had it with our government selling out to those who pay the highest price to keep them in office, then we can make the change. And if we don't, it's our fault. We can come together and organize. That's why the Justice Party was formed, and that's why I'm running for President of the United States. That's excellent. Now, there's actually a question here from the audience. Uh, what would you do about helping handicapped people and Social Security and how to handle the national debt without killing the programs that help people? Well, I, I've, I ran for Congress in 1996, and I called for the balancing of our budget under all circumstances other than war or a recession. Uh, that except for extraordinary circumstances, we ought to have a balanced budget or we ought to be running a surplus so that we can pay down the obscene accumulated budget that we now have. You know, Grover Norquist, right-wing Republican strategist, has been calling for years. He said, starve the beast. Let's run up the deficit. George Bush certainly did it. So did Ronald Reagan. Let's run up the deficits and accumulated budget to the point where we're going to have to cut back these programs for the most vulnerable. Cut back entitlement programs, so-called. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And they've been successful in doing it. What President Obama has already put on the table cuts in Social Security and Medicare. I think it's absolutely obscene. The Republicans are winning with this strategy. Drive up the deficits, drive up the accumulated debt to the point where we have to start cutting. And in their view, the only place we're going to cut is in these programs. Even President Obama, did you hear him in a State of the Union address when he talked about what we would cut? He said non-defense discretionary spending. <laughs> Amazing. It's always non-defense spending that we're going to cut. He doesn't have the guts to say, as President Eisenhower did in his last presidential speech, that the military-industrial complex is undermining our country, that, that they have such control, that they're taking this country in such the wrong direction, both in building up these armaments and selling them all over the world, but also in, in driving up our budget to the point where we're not able to do the kinds of things that we ought to be doing as a nation, building up our infrastructure, creating jobs, providing better education, all the kinds of things that we were talking about earlier. So we really have this choice. Do we keep going in the same direction and putting the most vulnerable at risk? 
Or do we change our spending priorities? Do we change our priorities as a nation in terms of our foreign policy and start doing what's healthy and beneficial and creating a safer, more peaceful world and a better world for our children and later generations by taking things in a vastly different direction? That's why this election is so important, and it's why it's so important that we no longer allow the Democrats and Republicans to continue on with the status quo. And I know there are those who will say, but, you know, if we vote for you, Rocky, that's one less vote for Obama, and, gee, doesn't that mean that one of these right-wing Republicans are going to be elected? Well, that kind of thinking is what allows the status quo to continue on. Because whether it's Obama or the Republican nominee, and I'm not saying there's not a nickel's worth of difference between the two, because there is, but are we really satisfied with continuing the status quo with this corrupt system that we have from which President Obama has benefited and is going to continue to benefit? He's the largest recipient of Wall Street campaign contributions in the history of this nation. So does it surprise anybody that his administration hasn't held one personal one person accountable for the massive financial fraud that helped lead toward the economic meltdown from which so many of us are still suffering, not only in this country, but around the world? There is no accountability when you get people like Barack Obama in office. I mean, one of the first things he said when he was elected, oh, about those war criminals, about those people that committed federal felonies and engaging in illegal surveillance on American citizens, oh, let's just let it, don't worry about it. Let's just look forward, not backwards. Well, that is absolutely obscene. That is undermining the rule of law in a way that's just so contrary to our constitutional system of government, to to a government of laws rather than of men, and certainly of women, but the expression is usually of laws and not, not men. But we have the choice now. Will we allow that status quo to continue, or will we choose a different way? Will we choose a different system? Will we choose a completely different paradigm where government works in the service and for the interests of the entire public and not just those who are buying their way into Congress and into the White House? So I would also say in a corollary to all of that, that is the spoiler argument, is where do we draw the line? Will you draw the line at no longer allowing people to stay in office who promise to get us out of wars and simply escalate them? Will you draw the line in terms of our constitutional protections against a president who targets U.S. citizens for assassination without any semblance of due process? Will you draw the line as to a president who says as to war criminals, uh, just forget about it. Forget about those violations, not only of the Geneva Convention and the Convention Against Torture, but against our own domestic law, the federal anti-torture statute. 
the, the War Crimes Act of 1996, all of which criminalize the kinds of actions that apparently to President Obama we ought to just forget about. Will you draw the line at indefinite detention? Will you draw the line with the kind of impunity granted by this president and his administration for the financial fraudsters on Wall Street that not only bought and paid for his race, or a large part of it last time around, but I guess as a reward, the, the source for those that have surrounded him in his administration. Look at his economic advisors. Look at his Secretary of Treasure, of Treasury. They all are coming from these Wall Street firms who have committed these kinds of crimes, where they've been the regulators that, that have been palling around with those Wall Street firms and who haven't regulated, who helped deregulate the financial industry. Again, helping bring us to the point where we've been suffering since 2008. So if, if you want a different way in this country, if you want to get out from under the yoke of these corporate interests who have their way with Congress and the White House simply by shelling out all the money while we, the American public, continue to suffer more and more as the years go by, while we're seeing the threats to Social Security, to Medicare, uh, to the, the jobs that ought to be in this country but have been shipped overseas in large part because our government was bought off by the corporations that have benefited, if you've had it with that, rise up and say, I'm going to support somebody who has infinitely more executive and management experience than Barack Obama ever had, because I served eight years. I oversaw more than a $200 million general fund budget, as well as a redevelopment agency budget, as well as a major international airport. I practiced law. I, I, I fought against those who abused their corporate and governmental powers. I fought for people who were victims of that and fought successfully. You can check out my record. I, I urge anybody, take a look at the Wikipedia biography, what I've accomplished, how I've shown my commitment to these kinds of principles that we've been talking about tonight, and then ask yourself, do you want a continuation of what you see under either a Republican or a Democrat, or will you stand with us and say, we're going to join this people's movement to return our government to the point where it's serving the public interest? Well, you've done an excellent job tonight, and um, I actually wanted to talk to you just a little bit off the air after this is over. We're down to the last 90 seconds or so. Um, let's uh, go over your website one more time. It's VoteRocky.org, and I urge everybody, we've limited contributions to $100 per person in this race. Uh, I think that's probably unprecedented in U.S. politics, except I think Buddy Romer's doing the same thing. Sure. And I urge everybody also to go to, to AmericansElect.com and show your support for me there because it's going to it's going to reflect a lot to the american people that we're doing so well with americans elect and building this movement awesome thanks again rocky and um 
Thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. As I said before, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, please check out my website, v or v-radio.org, where you can listen to archives of more great programming like this one. I'm going to leave you with some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.